How many of you enjoy playing a good game of cards, some kind of card game? You like card games? Whoa. Kathy enjoys card games and all kinds of board games, things like that. I don't like it so much. I only have to do it on vacation uh, because that's when all the family's together. Uh, apples to apples is still real big at, on our vacation or whatever. But what kind of card games do you like? What do you like to, what do you play? Ooh, what? Spoons? That's still a thing? I didn't, oh my goodness. Back when I was a boy 70 years ago, that was, you know, that was, a, we couldn't afford spoons. We had to use something else. Um, so you, you like, what, are, what, what do you got? What, do, you, do college students play card games? What'd you say? Dutch Blitz? That old guy likes it. I, I, never, I never heard of that. I'm so out of touch with my culture. Do you know that when I was a kid, uh, I mean, we grew up, we played poker, and uh, we just played for coin. Everybody always says, like, the amount is what's important, you know, as long as you're not playing for a lot of money. But we would play for more. Uh, and we'd play, uh, I was trying to remember some of the other games. But, you know, there was a time in our history, my grandmother, as a matter of fact, wouldn't let a deck of cards in her house. Anybody have a heritage like that where you just did something? Oh, some of you know what I'm talking about, where it was just not allowed. Now, is there ever a mention in Scripture? You know, where, did Jesus ever walk in and the disciples were like, oh, Jesus, we're playing Yahtzee, and we are, and he said, you know, and he said, verily, verily, be thou gone, you know, and put that away. Anything with dice, anything with cards, my grandmother wouldn't let in her house. Uh, my grandfather was a good Christian man, and, and probably I learned and heard more about Jesus in a sincere way, in a genuine way, from him than anybody I can think of growing up. But he worked for the county, and as gifts at Christmas time, it was kind of a custom. I guess it was a West Tennessee thing. Uh, he would get bottles of whiskey in these fancy bottles, you know, real decorative bottles. I don't know if they still do that or if you remember that, but my grandmother would intercept those gifts, and she would pour it out, and then she would fill those bottles with food coloring, with wa with colored water, and put them around the house. You know, Decker, I think you know, I, there was something about that. It, to me, it was a disconnect. It's like, we're not going to drink it, but those bottles sure are pretty. We're going to decorate our house with them, you know. Those kind of things, especially like the car or mixed swimming, some of you probably, you know, you you couldn't you couldn't do that kind of thing. That's called a moray. Now I was raised in a in a culture. We weren't really a Christian home, but we had guidelines, or there were certain behaviors that we lived by that tracked very closely with Christian values. Now, I didn't know why I did those, and some of them didn't make sense, or some we've abandoned. So, you know, most of you in the room said, yeah, I like a good game of cards, and I don't really see a moral problem, ethical issue with doing that. Whereas at one time in America, not that long ago, in many of your lifetimes, you remember when that was taboo. That was something you didn't do. 
You see, those kind of things come and go because that's a more. That's not a biblical principle. And I think those change for each of us as we feel maybe convicted or you feel comfortable or uncomfortable with certain behaviors um, because we don't have a firm scriptural basis for it. In the 1700s, the theater became a very popular thing, uh, particularly in Europe. There were theaters everywhere, just like we have um, movie theaters. Uh, they would do plays and musicals and th that kind of thing and concerts. And it became uh, kind of a conflict with those who called themselves Christians. And, you know, if you were, you know, most people would go, but the Christians, uh, the conservative, the, the, the people, you know, felt like, well, this, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't go to the theater. That's just, you just don't. You just don't. So they didn't, they just didn't. But they were very successful. And so there became this tension. And we face this all the time, don't we? There are certain things. And then we have this tension of like, well, what about me? What about as a follower of Jesus? Is this a, is this a thing? Is this something that's wrong or right? And and. I don't know how to respond because it kind of used to be wrong in my mind and now it's okay or everybody else seems to be doing that. But the Christians didn't engage in theater. But along came a guy named George Whitfield. And you may have, you may recognize that name from, from church history, George Whitfield. Um, and at the age of 24 in 1739, he began to preach. And the unique thing, the different thing about George Whitfield is that he didn't apply the rules. At that time, a pastor would stand uh, over here in the corner. Uh, there would be a little box they would keep him in, and all the people would sit in little boxes. And you could buy those boxes or, you know, give enough to the church is really what it was. And you could get more prestigious and get closer down front or, for, you know, wherever. And, and it, was, it was all a whole different design. George Whitfield began to preach outdoors. And this was, this was not heard of. And he began to partner with the Wesley brothers. You remember them? This was the beginnings of Methodism and beginning of the evangelical movement in England. And he preached his heart out and there was an anointing on him. And he would stand in the middle of the room and people would sit theater style and he was criticized and there were articles and there were all these things written about him and people would get up and preach about this this new thing this guy who's doing and you see for us you know generations later we think seriously that was a problem and there's some of you that struggle with things in the church today and you go oh my goodness what's going to happen those are always going to come and go that's a moron now, I explained that. I guess probably maybe took a little too much time with that because, I mean, and that guy, he would pre This is a, so amazing to me because I'm wearing this microphone. You know, I mess with it all the time uh, in this room so that I can be heard. He would preach outdoors sometimes to 8, 10, even 20,000 people at a time. And he was able to project his voice so that he could be heard. That, that's amazing to me. I would have liked to have seen that 
and seeing the power of the Lord uh, on this guy and how he just ignored the mores, he ignored the, ignored the critics, and he just did what he felt like God was leading him to do. A lot of people came to Christ um, under his ministry. He didn't live long. He wore, he literally wore himself out uh, with, with preaching and teaching and traveling uh, all the time. Uh, I've got this idea, and this series is kind of connected to, to, to this thought that a lot of what we do as individuals, as families, as a church are built on traditions and mores and not scripture and biblical principles. So when we begin to pray about and think of the direction God wants to take us and where we're going together as a fellowship, as a church family, um, one of the first things uh, that I wanted to make sure that we're connected to is scripture. That we understand God's heart and his vision and that we don't just build it on something that because grandpa did it that way or because, you know, somebody invented it out of a denomination or whatever, but know that it was it would be a part uh, of something stronger and deeper and, and bigger. So the very first week of this series, we used an illustration um, that the, the staff and I did together. And like I say, I, I had this in my uh, journal. Uh, and if you're a guest, this is sort of like, you know, if you watch television and, and before a show comes on, it'll say,
And I go through and I think, okay, I cannot figure out where we're, how in the world we're different. There's got to be some way or we just grew up in different ways. So that becomes our culture, and that's what we call Calvary. That's our worship and our teaching, our missions, our groups, all of that. And then out of that begins to flow all these ministries uh, that we have. And, um, and that's where we began uh, this series. Now, there was a moray when, um, when I first started attending church that you went to a church and you were loyal to that church, and particularly if you lived in a community, that that was where you went, and that was kind of the thing. That's not so true anymore. People aren't as loyal to a denomination or a church uh, like they once were. Now, I don't think that necessarily means that everyone's not as committed uh, than they used to be. And I know that you guys and that you guys, uh, millennials, get a, a lot of pressure sometimes, like, oh, they just, they're just not committed and they're going to do it. You know what? I'm not sure about that. I think if you give people uh, a challenge and give something worthy to be committed to, that they will. It's just going to look a little different. And in, you know, the process of this series, I've talked to several people, non-Christians. I've talked to Christians. I've talked to older people and younger people. And I'm not sure that we really understand how to separate ourselves from what is, like I said, traditional mores or those kind of things and get connected to who God's created us to be. Now, some of the values that we have, and I think there are four that I'm in an, every week I sum this up in a different way, and, and you probably could raise your hand and go, I thought you said we were about this, and now you're saying it a different way. I hope it comes across, uh, even though the language is you know, kind of shifting a little bit, it's the same thing. So worshiping Jesus is a big deal to us, and not just singing, but in every day in our lifestyle of who we are, that's a value that we cherish. And I want to worship him tomorrow when I'm driving in my car, just like I did this morning in this room with you. To have genuine relationships with God's people. I see that over and over and over in Scripture, how he wants us to connect with one another and to have this unique relationship that you don't find in other places in society or culture that we, we come together under the lordship of Jesus, under the banner of his love, and we are connected in a very unique way. There are some of you that I'm as or more close to than my physical family because there is this spiritual bond. There's something magic that's happened uh, that glues us together. And we've talked a lot about the fact that we want to make disciples. Matthew 28, Jesus said, you know, okay, I'm about to go and I'm going to turn this over. And here's what I want. Well, what do you want us to be doing? What are we, what are we about? He goes, I'm making disciples. That's what it's all about. And I think if there is a, a, a growth area for our fellowship, I think it's this because uh, we're good at teaching and trying. we got Bible studies and we have community groups. But I think initiating people into that relationship and connecting non-believers uh, to Jesus is a place we need to grow in. And I think that's a, a thing God's given us for 2017 is to begin and walk people through that process um, sitting down and having coffee with people and mentoring them and maybe getting them into a teaching environment. Uh, I remember when some friends all collected money and, and took up money and bought me a Bible because I didn't, I didn't have a Bible. 
Um, and that, I still have that, that first scripture. That's what I'm talking about, making disciples and continuing that process. And then the, the fourth thing is doing ministry for those in need. Uh, we have a unique, uh, beautiful opportunity to do things together that we could never do as individuals. So we try to make a difference where God leads us. And that's one of the things I like about church. I'll talk to a pastor and go, yeah, we're real involved doing this. And I go, well, we don't do that so much, but God's called us to do this. And so he does this mosaic, this this beautiful blend of ministries and people uh, where we're making a difference in the world in very real, very practical, pragmatic ways. So in order to see those things happen, here's here's what I, for what it's worth, uh, here's what I think we've got to do this year. First of all, I think we've got to clear away anything that isn't Jesus. Anything that's contradictory to who he is in us. Anything that's not Jesus. Why are we doing that? I think we need to emphasize relationships over our traditions. And make sure that that stays a priority and a focus. And when I say relationships, I don't mean acquaintances. And I don't mean that we're nice to each other, that we talk, or that we see each other at the grocery store, the restaurant, or the theater. And we go, "Uh, hi, you know, or we do the language that Christians do. But that we're genuinely connected through uh, meaningful relationships. Uh, that was one of the first things that really impressed me as a young believer. And I've told you before, I was a freak, and I thought I wouldn't be accepted. I was very sensitive to that, to rejection, and I didn't look like all the other church people. But I remember this lady, uh, she was an older lady, uh, who hugged me one Sunday morning. And uh, that just so took me off guard because I thought she'd be scared of me. Like if she got close, I maybe would get her on drugs or something, you know, and uh, just, you know, get her addicted. And, but she, uh, she, she hugged me. And, it, and so this, this intergenerational fellowship began. And I remember in that little church where I was, I had friends who were you know, the same age as my grandparents. And I, and I knew children and, and students. And, and, I, and I loved that connection like that. I don't know if I'd experienced that outside of in a limited way in my own family. So that's a beautiful thing that you get here that, you know, we we don't have in a lot of other places. I think we need to be genuine. And we need to be genuine in the way that we talk about our faith. For some of you, this one's going to be a deal breaker because you don't talk about your faith. You talk about movies, you talk about sports, you talk about UT and how we're on the edge of this bubble and we're probably not going to make the SEC because, you know, we, we're going to get, you know, we, anyway, you know, we, we do that, right? So you're not embarrassed, you don't hesitate, you wear orange and, you know, you'll wear it even when you're in Florida or Kentucky or Georgia and You know, I've been in airports where people see each other, you know, their hat or something, and they go, go Vols, go Vols, you know. Or uh, I saw a guy had on a Braves jersey once, and a guy walked by me and went, I go, and I think, we got this secret code going on. But sometimes when it gets to our faith, there's a disconnect. We don't talk about it. We're embarrassed. We feel like I shouldn't do that. I I really believe this is where we are in our history. This maybe is where you are in your life is that, 
I want you to knock that off. And he wants you to begin to know that it's okay. It's okay to talk about your faith uh, and to be genuine, to be real about that. You don't have to have a memorized spiel that you go into. You don't have to be manipulative or weird. You know, um, for a while, I think I was a little obnoxious with my person, with my family. I was trying to get everybody in heaven and uh, just a little heavy about that and, you know, kind of intense. And the Lord began to say, you're on the right track. You got a good heart, but you got to you got to dial it back a little bit. You're scaring people. You know, uh, my dad's avoiding me. He's like, you know, so um, so we've got to figure those things out. And then I think we need to offer people a challenge worthy of their time and talents. You can't just do little stuff or mediocre things or things that we're really not called to, but it's just what we've been doing, so we're going to keep doing it. We're in a place where we need to reevaluate, God, what looks like Jesus and where have you called us and what do we want to do? Because there are three different kind of churches, in Knoxville at least. There are churches that entertain you, There are churches that bore you, and there are churches that challenge you. I'd love for us, my vision is for us to be a church that challenges you, makes you think a little bit, makes you step your game up uh, as you walk with the Lord and engage with Him and with others and connect uh, in in our community. Thinking through that, you know, there's changes that come. One of those changes, I'm just going to give you some examples, and then I'm going to get to this scripture that's really, really on my heart today, and it's a big scripture. I've had to wrestle and struggle with this all week. But, um, uh, you know, we, we love the community at Montgomery Village. Uh, we actually, our denomination has, uh, has a, you know, uh, a place there of ministry. Tom Hodge is here. He's the, the, the director of the Baptist Center there, and so we connect there. We've partnered in some ways with Boys and Girls Club, any doors that God's opened. We've had a ministry there through soccer uh, for several years for kids. We believe we're at a place, you know, that that, if soccer is a vehicle that we've, you know, that God's used to get us in and to open doors, it's kind of run out of gas, you know. Not everything is designed to last forever. We're so reluctant as people to let go of something. Once we start something, oh, Lord, you know, we're never, you know, we're never going to stop. You know, we're never going to let go of that. Everything's got a lifespan. Everything has a season to it. We think we've come to the end of that with soccer. Now, our value is to minister to people in the Vestal and Montgomery Village and, and that area. So does that mean we pull out and we're, you know, we're, well, we're done? No. It means it'll change and it'll look a little different. And I have some ideas. Maybe you have some ideas of how to reach out to be, you know, involved there and to make a difference in in that community but we don't think it's going to be it's going to it's not going to look the same way as it has looked for the last several years now there are other ministers you know we have teen club uh, i go over I, I i spoke this week at a bible study there we do we do that regularly uh, i have a heart and a vision maybe to provide counseling so we can break some generational change uh, so that the next generation doesn't make the same mistakes over and over because that's what i see happening and i'm from a community like that and i just see we just do it over and over and over again. How can we make a difference over the next, you know, 10 years and 20 years and not just, you know, in an immediate way? Um, I would like us to see ministry to reach out uh, to be more accessible to this community. You know, just right 
on the other side of those trees is a neighborhood called Sequoia Hills, and it's it's a, it's an uh, it's one of the older communities here in Knoxville, and I think we could have a bigger, deeper, stronger impact there with families. And then there's Sutherland, and there's downtown, there's West Hills, just this whole Bearden area. If you take Calvary as the center of a circle and just and, you know just draw a ring, say five, eight miles around us, what are we doing to really minister uh, to people in this area? Now, one of the things we've whined about ever since I've been here, at least, is where we are, you know, is not a convenient spot uh, geographically to this city. And I think God has turned that around in such a beautiful way that we have become a very perfect place to minister to everyone in the city. And some of you come from Powell. Some of you come from South Knox. You come from, you know, Farragut and all over downtown uh, we're at a perfect place. God's kept us near the university because that's our heartbeat. Uh, and he's given us this, this beautiful place where we can, we can worship here. But we can minister to people in this community because a lot of people, you know, people moved west. They moved different directions. A lot of folks uh, coming back into this area. So I think we're ready for that. We're seeing changes in our children's church ministry. You know, they've got ideas about how to make that better. Uh, I see 20-somethings all around us, and I don't see us making a huge impact. Guys, we're calling you out to help us, and uh, let's, let's see what, how can we reach uh, this generation to worship. So here's what I'm going to do, and one of the things I'm doing this year, and I know you're thinking, why is he talking about this? Um, sometimes I do series, I do a lot of series, and I try to connect the messages so that that makes sense. So it's at the end of the day, if I've done four weeks or six weeks or three weeks or whatever, they're all sort of connected. And it's one long message that I've chopped up into pieces. I think God's leading me to kind of do that with series. So when we began the year with the messy series and talked about relationships, because it was those commandments. Jesus said, love the Lord and love each other and get connected like that. So we start there and then we've gone in you know, to, to this series on vision. And next week, I'm going to begin another series, and it's kind of a segue. It's going to be connected to this, but in a different direction. We're calling that Rethink Religion. Because some of us are pretty religious, and some of us haven't been brought up in that, and some of us is so second nature. It's hard to, to understand the difference between what God's doing with us and what's just religious. And is it okay to be religious? You know, I have spent most of my adult life apologizing for being religious. And I think, wait a minute, I'm not. I'm not going to, you know, uh, I think there's more to that. So come back next week and I'll tell you what I, I'll tell you more what I mean about that. So that's some of the, you know, the, the directions that God's leading us. Uh, because we feel that this is a serious time in our history as a church and, and just in our culture. I mean, I've been here for a while. I have never seen our country blow up like this. I've never seen people so polarized over politics and social issues and over morality than I do now. Um, this is one of the most unusual times, at least I've, that I've ever seen. So what's next? What's at the end of that? Well, turn, if you have a scripture or a device, or if you just want to look up here, I want to read you this scripture that God brought to my heart it's in Matthew chapter 25, and I'm going to begin reading at the 31st verse. 
this is kind of a weird scripture because it's so many elements in it are different than maybe what you're used to reading or that you think about automatically. Here's what it says. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't minister to you? answer them truly I say to you as you did not do it to one of the least of these you did it not to me and these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life in verse 31 you know, he says when you know, the, the son comes in his, the son of man, which is Jesus, probably his favorite title for himself because he represents all humanity. And it says when he comes in his glory, on his glorious throne. Grammatically, that's unusual to put that same word in the sentence twice. And what he's trying to get us to see is that this is the king of kings. This is Jesus in all of his glory and in his position as the righteous one and as the judge. This is going to be a real, um, a real thing. So he's in his glory, and around him are all these angels. You see this angelic. You've got heaven and you've got earth connected because in verse 32 he says, all the nations, all the nations. This is after the prophecy is fulfilled when, you know, when he said, and everyone shall hear of the gospel, and then after that I will come. That's happened. And he says, all the nations. It's very, very inclusive. Then Jesus does something different and something unusual. He separates them. I want you to do something for me, okay, just for fun, just to illustrate this. All of you who have blue eyes, if you have blue eyes, would you just stand? You just stand. 
all the pretty blue-eyed people. That's a, that's a that's a that's a lot. Okay. See, I just separated you from everybody else. Would you sit down, please? Would all the green-eyed people stand up? If you have green eyes, you have green eyes, sweetheart. Oh. <laughs> I knew they were beautiful. All right, you see, here's all the the green-eyed people. Green-eyed people married green-eyed people. Huh, okay. No, yeah, I look, yeah, she's looking around. All right, that's the green-eyed people. All right, how many gray-eyed people? Who got gray eyes? Hmm. Hmm, gray-eyed people are... Gray-eyed people have always been just... All right, how many brown-eyed people? Brown-eyed girl. Okay, brown eyes. Okay, are your eyes brown, Caleb? Okay, you're just going to take that one because it's as close as I can get. Okay, <laughs> take a stand. All right. These are all the brown-eyed people. Do you see what I just did? Thank you. Be seated. I separated us. By eye color. And that's just one little attribute. And it's not that you know, important a thing. And I thought it would be probably the least offensive thing if I said, you know, okay. Um, so I'm not making a judgment. I didn't create your eye color. I didn't do any of that. All I did was note the fact that that was a truth already in place. That's already something about us. So what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, I'm going to separate you, but that separation has already taken place. He's not creating a reality. He's just moving forward with the reality that's already there. So he separates. It's a word that means to set off by boundaries, to define, to mark off, to put people in proper categories. So that's all Jesus does here at this final judgment. Verse 35 and 36, he talks about hunger and thirst and clothing and being welcoming and visiting people. You know, as I read that, I thought, those are all basic life needs. They're physical, they're emotional, and they're spiritual. If I had written this, I would have wanted to know how many verses you memorized, how many prayers you prayed, how many times you've been to church, how many Bible studies you're a part of, are you active in a community group? You see, I would give it that spiritual thing. And Jesus just, he just puts out these hunger, thirst, clothing, very, very real things. Then he says in verse 37, the righteous, the righteous, that's a word uh, that literally means the innocent. Those who have been made innocent again, those who are just and upright. And it was fascinating to me that it, you know, in verse 38 and 39, the, the righteous are unaware of their own goodness. That's true humility. They didn't even know. And he's saying, because you did all this, and they're like, when did we do that? I didn't do any of those things. I'm not that good. You know, that, and then the, the ones who responded in a negative way, well, we didn't, you know, they got all defensive. When we, we didn't do that. When, when did we not take care of you? You know, you can almost hear that tone come through. The ones who respond 
I have found are the ones who generally need it the least, you know. Um, and the ones who need it the most sometimes think, well, that doesn't apply to me. I'm already pretty good. And the fact is we're better and worse than we think we are. We don't measure. We don't understand where we fit in that scale, but he he does. So he defines it for them in verse 40, and he says, you did it unto the least of these, my brothers. You did it unto those people. You were doing it to me, or you weren't doing it for me. And I hope that's a little motivational thing, and you've probably heard preachers, you've heard guys like me before say, you do it as unto the Lord. You know, you, um, I heard sometimes people say, well, I'm just doing th- you know, this or that, but um, no, you did it unto him. And he says, Adelphos, these, these brothers, people who are connected with one another in a close family sh- that becomes like, becomes like uh, your relations. And Jesus says, I'm connected to these people. I'm connected to people. So when you do it to them, you're doing it to me. And you feel that way, right? My sister and I never got along growing up. We fought all the time. We were as different as night and day. And I love her now, and she loves me. But, oh, my goodness, we, we, just, we just had a time until somebody outside of the family began to pick on her. And I remember that happening, and I went up, and I go, oh, no, that's my sister, you know. And you go to their defense, so that, that kind of washes away. And Jesus said, you're, you're living under this curse. And a curse was when you declared something ready or categorized for destruction. It's to doom someone because the reality is already there. You're just waiting on the sentence and you're just waiting on this punishment he mentions in verse 46 is when there is the execution of a sentence or to pay a penalty. It's when the gavel, is that the, the, the hammer the judge uses? For those of you in, yeah, the gavel, okay. Uh, when, when, that, when that hits that table and he goes, here's your fine. Here's what's going to happen uh, to you. And to, when you pay this penalty, the penalty for sin is death. It's separation. And we've been told that from the very, very beginning. This is not new information. It is separation. And at this final judgment in this passage, that's what's happening. All through the Gospels, this is kind of a interesting thing to me all through the gospels all through the new testament especially in paul's writings and in, in, in all through the bible we are told we're not saved by works i mean for me that's a, like a mantra i mean when i'm talking to somebody who thinks well i think i'll be good enough and i think well it's not about you being good or bad and then trying to think i got more good things i think i did than bad things I and mean, how are you going to figure that out it just he says it's not about that it's always grace. It's grace through faith where I'm saved. So here's the crazy thing. We're not saved by faith. I I get that in every way. However, in Matthew 25, we are separated by our works. Everything he does, you know, and he calls everybody out, and he goes, "Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna divide you guys up, put everybody on the left and the right, and here's how I'm gonna decide who does that. How many of you visited sick people? How many of you ministered? How many of you fed 
think, whoa, we didn't see that coming. We didn't know it was going to be about works. You see, this is another one of those things that we've kind of got to be careful with in our culture. You know, in John 13, 35, he said, by this, all men will know you're my disciples. By what? By what? If you love one another. If you take care of each other. Again and again, Jesus said, if you love me, if you're my disciple, you'll keep my commandments. You see, there's the test. There's how we know if we're in Christ. And there's got to be some way. James talks a lot about this. I'm going to preach out of James next week. Because there has to be some criteria that shows what you say you believe is really what's functioning in your life. Because otherwise, we will reduce our Christianity down to a set of agreement with facts and information that we've been told. And some of you bought into that. And I can't tell you how many people that I've talked to, maybe you've talked to, maybe you're one of these folks who says, oh yeah, I know I'm a Christian because I prayed that prayer. I prayed the magic prayer and I was baptized. And so now I can do whatever I want. I can live however I want. I think I'm still a Christian because I've been taught one of my mores, my culture says if you do that, and you go through that ritual and everything, then you're, then you're in. And Jesus says, I don't know where you got that. The way I will know is if you've kept my commandments. The way I will know is what you did with that after the fact. Whoa, that's pretty hard. There's one other thing I noticed about this passage that, that struck me as odd or as different. All through Scripture... All through his ministry and his gospel, Jesus is constantly saying, come unto me. Those of you who are weary and you're laden and you're tired, come unto me. Those of you who are full of sin and you don't have anywhere else to go, come to me. The little children, don't stop them. Let them come unto me. And that's my image of Jesus. It's like open-armed and saying, come, come. Even all the way in the Revelation to John at the end, he says, you know, to the, to the bride, I say, come. But in this passage, in verse 41, he says, depart from me. Go away. Go away. Second Thessalonians chapter one uh, verse eight. It says, In flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Does that feel a little different than maybe what you were thinking about? Or in uh, Revelation, uh, the Revelation to John, uh, chapter 12, verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. 
And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them night and day before our God. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For those of you who are guests, we have frequent visitors. Um, I want you to know if you can find, it's just a bird. You you can, there's lots of, you'll see them later. Um, there is, there is a, there is a destination, there's an end to this. There is a final judgment. And at this moment, Jesus is saying, come, come, come. Come to me. But there will be a day. There will be a time where he will say, it's over. It's finished. Depart from me. I don't know how open-ended this is, but I know it's not going to last. There was a colorful preacher named Billy Sunday. He was a uh, former pro baseball player. He said this, hell is the highest reward that the devil can offer you for being a servant of his. That's going to be the end of that. That's what C.S. Lewis started to say, one of my favorite authors, he probably is my favorite author. He said this, there are, See, if I began the quote, I'll read it from here because I've got it written a little differently. There are two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. The gates of hell are locked from the inside. You continue to tell him, depart from me, depart from me, depart from me. There will come a day when he will give you exactly that, just what you want. He'll leave you alone, and he'll tell you, okay, depart from me. But the day he says, come. You know, we started this series with this big idea of a vision, and, you know, we did the diagram and we try to describe it in a in a big way so we can kind of get in you know I say okay I get it I understand it and we said let's shrink that down let's make it into a tweet you know let's get it where you could post it and and just you know short one sentence kind of an idea and then last week we took it down and said you know what let's see if we can make it even smaller and direct and more powerful and focused and we just came up with one word and that's this word connect this is our vision 
relationship with God through his son Jesus. And if you've never done that, you've never taken that step, the door is still open. It's not over yet. I don't know how long it will be for you or for any of us, but I know that today you still have that opportunity to be connected. And then to be connected into a fellowship where you can be challenged. Then we have this ministry to connect other people to a relationship with Jesus and to one another, to us, and to us with them. It's connection. And that's our vision.